put my beer loudly down. Oh my god, stop. Hello, everyone. This is episode five of A Possibility of Opinions. This episode is titled Shut Your Pants All the Way Up. Welcome. Is it? Is This is, is your co host, Joanna just, Price. This is Dylan. Is it not just Shut Your Pants? No, it's all the way up. It's all the way up. Okay. Because people might get confused and only shut them half the way up. I see. Okay. So where are we, Joanna? We're at, we're at the introduction part. Where are we on planet Earth, Joanna? Oh! <laughs> we're in Sacramento, California. I'm visiting Dylan. It's been a really great trip. Every minute has been so enjoyable. It's been wonderful. Um, no, really. It's I've known Joanna for like 10 years. So sometimes I can tell when she's being insincere. No, no, no. Um, we watched a whole lot of Star Trek. It was We watched a whole lot of Star Trek. It was fun. And uh, we watched a John Sales movie called Liana. And we went out to lunch a couple times. We played Illamont, which we'll we get to. We played Illamont. Illamont's good. We'll talk, um, we'll talk about Illamont. And we played, um, what's the girl, girl genius Girl game? Genius The Works, which is an old card game based on an uh, indie comic book. Yeah, yeah. And we have game night tonight, and, you know, it's been... Uh, busy. Busy. Very busy. It's been a week. Yeah. And um, there may be some sort of changes in for the podcast in the distant future. Should we talk about it? Yeah, I, I mean, yep. So, like, there's a distinct possibility that I will be living in Sacramento, California, come April. Um, and if that occurs, then all future podcasts could theoretically be recorded in person, just like this one is, because we are together here in Sacramento, California. Which is much more pleasant, but makes it harder to level. So if, uh, if I'm too loud, I'm sorry. I mean, you get used to it if you Yeah, know. it's okay. So, Mom, you don't, you don't need to email me this time. It's okay. And speaking of emailing... Speaking of emailing... Mailbag's next, right? Yeah, so we have our mailbag. Uh, this is a regular segment, except not really, because no one actually writes to us. you don't freaking write to us? What, what yeah, the you wrong jerks, with you? What's you know, the email address? It's a possibility of opinions at gmail.com. At gmail.com. It's very easy to remember. Easy it, to remember because it, it's the title of our podcast, right. at gmail.com. There's days when I start to think that we actually don't have a massive amount of listeners. What? How could that possibly know, be? Right? Everybody is Everyone listening listens. to us. Um, it's just like Game of Thrones where they gather around the water cooler and they're like, did you see what happened? When and someone's like, spoilers, I haven't heard that episode yet. Oh, I thought you were talking. I was like, who the hell in Game of Thrones gathers around the water cooler? I was like, did they even, like, they even Just for context, Joanna has had two sips of beer. So I apologize. for <laughs> Hold on. I'm like imagining like a medieval water cooler and like and like Game of Thrones characters gathered around like pitching. Because the way I heard you say that is yeah. like it's like in Game of Thrones. Yeah. Hark! Let us discuss the latest tourney results. Nay! I was not in the bleachers that day. That's amazing. No. Okay, I'm done. I'm done laughing. We can move on. Yeah. Um yes, alright. Uh so we did get an email. Yep, I'm Pulling. Is it just the one? I'm just just the one from my mom. From I'm Dylan's mom. From Dylan's Hi, mom. Lisa. Can we say her name? Yes. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Lisa. I'm... It was very sweet, though. Sweet email. Yeah. The title is Fan Mail. Um, she wrote, Dear Dylan and... Dylan? Dylan and Doanna. Dylan and Doanna. That's not what she wrote. That's just me not speaking. Dear Which is pretty typical. Beer... <laughs> Stop. Shut up. I've had trouble. Beer, chillin' and Joanna. I've had trouble this this trip with work, like a lot of uh. Was, there's a word for that, like something lalia, some uh, where you're just, like swapping around words. I don't know. Uh, I know what echolalia is, but that's yeah, not yeah, that. Yeah, different thing. Anyway, um, and and do you want to share what the most no- notable of those word swaps was, Joanna? Moody patties. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, um, Dylan was talking about his patterns of moodiness, which was one of the many highlights of this trip. Um, and he said. And instead of saying um, patterns of moodiness, he said patties of moodiness. And so now we're going to, we, we contemplated changing the name of this podcast to Dylan's Moody Patties, but we decided that that ultimately was not a good idea. So we're going to start put out a vegan burger brand instead. <laughs> it's going to be great, guys. Just keep an eye out for it in stores. Okay. So, uh, dear, dear, Dylan, jo- no, it's Joanna and, Jonah, and Dylan. It, it starts with Joanna. They think of you before dear they think of Mary. Joanna and Dylan. Dean and I are driving to Georgia from Woodby Island. Dean is his dad. Yes, my dad. And you guys are figuratively in the backseat arguing like the good old days. The good old days. Did we argue in their backseat? Uh, yeah, some. Sometimes I was in the front and you were in the back. Okay. Sometimes uh, I was... Oh, it's yeah, now. It's okay. 
Passing Flagstaff, we are on episode three. Each episode gets better, but we had to pause after the Peaches song and story to write you. It is so funny that I proposed Dylan earn three JP for the prank and Joanna earn one JP for her giggles. Now, do we get to give you the JP challenge? So I suggest that for a forthcoming episode, you each do a nature story, a little outside your norm, not too harmful, but a fun stretch. Perhaps something involving the outdoors, oh no, or plants or animals. The reason why there's an oh no in there is because Joanna traditionally does not like the outdoors. Yes. Dylan doesn't have a problem with that. I don't. Yes. So that was an, uh, an oh no directed yes, at me. At her, yes. We'll also be looking for songs about opinions. And they wrote, Happy New Year, Lisa, Buffy, my dog, and Dean. Yes. Big fans. Buffy once bit me in the face. But Joanna deserved it, to be fair. I didn't deserve it. No, that's it. actually not true. She doesn't. She didn't deserve it. But it did look cool for a little while. Yeah, you had this. You had a badass scar. I had a badass. Well, it wasn't Buffy's really a, a really dog, sweet a dog, though. She just um, she was startled. She was startled. She's yeah. no, she's a good doggy. She is, and she would. She didn't even bite me that hard. It just, it just was in. You know, if it, it just like was the in eyebrow. The eyebrow spot. skin is yeah. so thin. It was that, awkward. Spot, yeah. yeah. But then I had like one of those cool diagonal band-aids and I looked like a badass. Right, exactly. Like, it's like exactly like, you know, you're back from the fight club and you know. Yeah, it was yeah. really great. I looked super cool. Yeah, super um, cool. And I was like, yeah, yeah. It's actually the only time in her life she's looked super cool. You know what? Shut up. Shut up. Shut all the way up. Like your pants. Like my pants. Oh boy. So <laughs> another thing that we did on this trip is um we went to the library where I work. This is my favorite. I took Joanna there because um, in last year in 2018, two of the people working at library started a zine library. There was um, a sort of punk house called Casa de Chaos in Sacramento that was sort of closing down. Um, It it was getting you know demolished or something, and and they basically got the archives from it. So they got a bunch of zines, and they got some other zines. Um, So it's a like just a thing, and you can't like check them out through the system. They're not in the catalog. It's just like they're literally just on the shelf, and you pick them up and read them in the library. Yeah, so like reference in the sense that they're library only. And because they were gotten through this sort of secondary archive, there's a lot of zines where it's like you don't know what the origin point is. You know, they've just been kicking around for decades. And uh, and what did I show you, Joanna? Okay, so I'm going to run through these because I have all the photos of them. But there is, you know, earlier I said during the strip we were watching a lot of TNG. Well, there is, in fact, a zine collection written by a high school, a then high school student by the name of Joshua Chapman on uh, The Next Generation. Star Trek, The Next Generation. Yeah, Star Trek, The Next Generation. Um, and so I'm going to just, I, I, I capped a few, I took a picture of a few of the most, uh, a uh, few of the best parts. Um, well worth checking out if you're ever in Sacramento, but here is the introduction. And what's the date and age? I have no idea. Okay, so in this one, he is, in, the author is in seventh grade when he writes this, and I think it's like 1987 or 88. Well, I can read it. Okay. The, the, the seventh grade part will be in here. The, yeah, the okay. year, I don't know. Okay. This is the introduction. For my creative writing project, I decided to write a guide to all the aliens on the TV show Star Trek The Next Generation. I think that this is the best show on TV, and I think people would benefit from knowing about the aliens that appeared on the show. I hope you find this guide interesting and useful. That's the, that's the intro to the zines, and it's a series. Um, and what's the format? What does he do for each alien? Uh, so, I mean, he just has like a picture and a description and a review. So every alien gets a certain number of stars from this kid. Um, and his favorite is data. Um, so I actually believe I have the data. The data on data. Yeah, the data on data. Okay. Um, data, home, planet, Omicron, theta, episode, all episodes, rating five stars. Data is not really an alien. He is a humanoid android, but I am going to write about him anyway because he is basically the best person on the ship. Here are some of the reasons Data is great. He is really smart. His brain is basically a computer. He can read really fast, and when he uh, when he learns something, he can remember it forever. Whenever they need to know anything, Data is the person they ask. I think I am like Data in I think I am like Data in that way. It too, he is incredibly fast. There was an an episode where part of a star that exploded was going to crash into the ship, but the computer was broken and Data was the only person who could fix it in time. His hands moved so fast you could barely see them. Another thing that happened in that episode is that him and Tasha Yar had sex. (laughs) I have never had a girlfriend, but I think Tasha Yar would be a good one. She is definitely more pretty than than Troy or Dr. Crusher. They were only together once, but I think they still cared about each other a lot. And uh, and sometime after 
This is a spoiler. Yeah, every, it's fine. Sometime after Tasha died, Data would look at a hologram of her. I wish they had been a couple, but I don't know much about relationships, so maybe it would be a bad idea. Mr. Chapman, I'm very sorry. A few weeks ago, some of the guys at school told me there was a girl in my class who thought I was cute and asked me if I wanted to know who it was. I figured they were probably trying to play a trick on me, so I told them no. Then they asked what was wrong with me if I didn't want a girlfriend. I told them I didn't need a girlfriend because I had video games. And then they made fun of me. Whoa. <laughs> I know. This kid is awesome, though. And this, you know, you know, and and I just want to say that my very strong emotional response does not in any way suggest there's any parallels of his story in my own life. Nope. Whatsoever. Nope. Nope. Okay. Um, so... I'm going to continue on with some introductions and some more aliens because this is just very cool. This one is the, the, the last introduction I'm going to read is heartbreaking, but this one is probably the funniest. Oh, sorry. The, the one you're reading now. Yes. But I just want to say just to be clear. So Star Trek Next Generation has seven seasons. So he went and wrote a zine for every season with the exception. The last of, one is a the double. The last one's a double, a double, a double we'll feature. We'll get there. We'll yeah. get there. So this is, I'm not reading the introduction to all of them. I'm yeah. just reading some of them, but here's one. Um, introduction, I don't want to write an introduction for this issue. It's not like I'm getting graded on this shit anymore. Here is a picture of Data and his cat instead. I like that one. I think that one, he's like 10th grade, so this is like peak teenage angst. Yeah, right. Um, and then he, there's an, there is an alien that I'm going to read now. You, you will know this one. The episode is Darmok, um, or maybe you don't. Darmok and Jalad at Tanagra. At Tanagra, that's right. So this is a famous episode, in case you don't know. It's about an alien species that speaks entirely in allegedly metaphor. metaphor. Right? And so, um, uh, so I don't know about you, but when I hear the phrase Darmok at Tanagra, I like, I like get the chills. They're like There's something about those words that I just love. But this description of the episode is exceptional. Um, home planet, we don't know. Um, episode, uh, Darmok. Rating four stars. The name of the episode is Children of Tama. Here we go. This is a super ugly kind of alien. They look like burn victims and they have a weird language. People on the Enterprise say that these aliens only speak in metaphor. But I studied metaphors in in English class. And these aliens use allegory, not metaphor. I am not sure why the people on the Enterprise wouldn't know that. Since they make ten-year-old kids take calculus. The captain of these aliens knows that the Federation can't understand them. So he kidnaps Picard and makes them fight a third alien so that so that teamwork will help Picard understand. He does this even though he knows the alien is super dangerous and it eventually kills him. He sacrifices himself in the hope that it will allow peace with the Federation, which as far as sacrifices go is a pretty noble thing to do. I think it would be nice to have something in your life that you believed in enough to want to die for it. Aww. So if you can't tell right now, if you can't tell yet that this kid is awesome, I don't know what to tell you because he's awesome. Um, but now I have, the last thing I have is the introduction to the last zine. It's a, it's the double issue as you're about to hear. And I think this is like 1992. Yes. And so this is the part, if anybody knows the kid that made these zines and has, and well, we'll get there when yeah. this introduction is done. Okay, the introduction to the last issue, which is technically the sixth, because it's a double zine on seven seasons. Okay. This is going to be my last issue. I know that it would make more sense for there to be seven issues, since there were seven seasons of the show. But I'm going to graduate high school next month, and I don't know what is going to happen after that. I might not get a chance to write any more after this, so I'm just going to have this be a double issue. I don't know what I'm going to do after I graduate. I have thought a lot about leaving home once I finish school, because I fucking hate my life here. Part of me wants to get as far away from my mom as possible, but I am worried what will happen if I do. I hate her, and I hate the way she treats me, but I still don't want her to die. She didn't always used to be this way. Things have gotten so much worse the last few years, and I don't know what she would do if I wasn't around anymore. I think she would probably kill herself, or end up being one of those those crazy ladies who talks to themselves on the bus. So I am fucking trapped. I don't know what to do. I have been worrying about this for months, and I keep putting off the decision because either way I am fucked, and every day that passes, the pressure just gets worse and worse. So I have decided to give myself a deadline. I am going to write a review of one alien a day from now on, and when I am done, I will make my decision. Um, so if anybody knows, if anybody knows this guy, Joshua Chapman, and what he decided to do, and if he's around, we'd love to hear. Um, Joshua, we really enjoyed your zines, and... We think you're we hope, cool. We hope your life turned out good. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. He's pretty awesome. All right. So that's that's the Star Trek scenes from the Sacto Public Library. 
what is next? The other thing is that it just in passing in conversation this morning, um, I asked Joanna if she'd read uh, the obituary that the New York Times did on a prolific New York Times commenter, and she said she didn't know what I was talking about. So uh, I read this to her in full. Um, we're not going to read it full, full on the podcast. It's actually pretty long, but um, New York Times obituaries are a big deal. They do them on, you know, big famous people, and they're extremely well-researched and everything. This guy's name is Larry Eisenberg, Larry Eisenberg, and the headline for this obituary is Larry Eisenberg, 99 Dead, semicolon. His limericks were very well-read. Yes. Um, and so you can find it that way. It was published on December 26th by Marguerite Fox. Yes. Um, and so it's basically a guy who starting in 2008 and continuing until his death uh, in this December, he wrote 13,000, over 13,000 comments on the New York Times website, every single one of which was a limerick. And contentful, a response as right. well. So, he's, so he's, he's doing the same things that everyone else is doing, which is that he was responding to the news stories of the day and giving his opinions. He's just only doing it in limerick form. It's very cute, and it's worth checking out. Um, yeah. And this is clearly a person, and he would just do this at all hours of the day, and uh, yeah, and he, you know, was a professor, and he was a sci-fi author, and he did all sorts of cool stuff. Um, do you get to the very bottom of it where he he gives his own his own limerick, his bio limerick bio? Uh, hold on, here we go. A nonagenarian eye, a sometimes writer of sci-fi, biomed engineer, generally of good cheer, with limericks in ready supply. <laughs> That is our it's Larry, Larry Eisenberg. Eisenberg. Yeah. So yeah, check it out. Good All stuff. Right. Okay. Okay. So moving on to JP report back in assignment. Uh, this is where we're we're talking about the stu- JP stuff we did last time. Uh, Joanna is, I believe, starting. Last time I I told her that she had to go and listen to my five annual playlists mm-hmm. uh, and give me whatever thoughts she had on them. That's right. So. Um, you know, I listened to the playlist and, um, the, uh, one of the things, one of the things that popped out at me immediately is that Dylan has a number of instrumental, uh, songs on his playlist, which, you know, um, songs that have no lyrics. Um, and, and I noted somewhat, uh, uh, with some amusement that a lot of these songs have really great titles. Um, but like, um, one of them, uh, let me just pull them up. It's probably the Final Fantasy Tactics one. The no, no, no. It's the one from Upstream Color. Um, as if what is it? As if, as if the ending is universal. Oh, 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 yes. Uh, I have that here. Give me a second. Yeah. Um, um, well, and the thing with Upstream Color is the entire soundtrack title is taken from lines from Walden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is, and the funny thing is that that is. That song that I used there is the one that's at the end, as if it would have a universal and memorable ending. Right. And that's the song they play in the final three minutes of the film. Yes. Right. But there's no words. And then yeah. there's another one that has novel in the title. Um, um, only in novels. Only in novels. And that one also has no words. And that one, um, that's a remix from uh, Deus Do you want me not to jump in here? Yeah, I'm no, no, to- you can. And then, and then you, you just about to say from Deus Ex and the other... Um, notable thing about Dylan's playlist is that a lot of his songs come from media that he enjoys. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of music from movies and TV and video games that feature in his playlists. Uh, and then I, I, in my notes, I have favorite colon uh, Jesus song, which is not useful, but it's the one about it's the duet yeah. or the about walking like in the lonely valley. You've got you've got to walk. You've got to walk, which is yeah. from Kentucky Route Zero. Which, yes. which we'll be doing for a podcast at some point. Kentucky Road Zero is so good! Right, because that's the plan, right? Episode they have five. a new game now, by the way. The guys who made it? Yeah, I just you? saw it. Yeah, it was on their website, and they're okay. like, check out this new game. Anyways. Okay, but episode five, from what I hear from them, is like definitely 2019, uh, maybe closer than we know, is what the birdies tell me. So um, when that does that, we may do that as a podcast series. Um, but anyway, I was going to say that in Deus Ex, so one of the weird things about Deus Ex is that it has... A sort of standard form i mean you've played the first mission like there's often like a lot of combat you're going through places controlled by you know people you're opposing and maybe you're sneaking through maybe you're fighting using diplomacy but it has what are almost interludes bits and pieces that are just like pure narrative exploration and then it almost like turns into an adventure game and there's one time where you you're trying to track down what happened to this this once fairly powerful person named beth duclair and sort of her secrets and she was an illuminati member and stuff like that 
and you go back to her old mansion with her sort of wayward daughter Nicolette Duclair and upon your sort of getting to this place which looks in pretty good shape she says only in novels do places crumble to dust for no reason when their spirit is lost so that's where that song title comes from it's a remix of the theme for for there um yeah so uh the other things that other things i thought about um a lot of the songs that um that dylan has on his podcasts you know uh i would in fact maybe all of them i would i would call melancholy um and uh and all of them have what i think of as being particularly moody intros so there's a lot of um long intros before lyrics and a lot of that is very i think of it as being kind of ambient or very not um yeah so uh um so I would say that those are the main things that stuck out as I listened to his, uh, as I listened to the playlist. They're so they're very chill, right? They're not playlists that are at least they're not, not dance. Me. They're not danceless. They're not danceless, but they're also not like you know go out and get them early morning. Like I have a morning playlist I listen to when I'm headed out the door that has like you and know that, and that helps the you Star Wars that helps you like walk like, at a full three miles per hour. No, that <laughs> it just energizes you and stop making fun of you. You mean like Scotty? Not like Scotty, like coffee. Um, uh, so yeah, so I like them, and um, there were a couple songs that wouldn't load. So I went to YouTube for those, oh, no. and I will send you an email as okay. to which ones they were. It might have been browser specific. I didn't okay. test every single yeah. browser. I just went to YouTube and pulled them up. Um, I particularly th- I thought that there's an the addition of the Buffy song about just going through the going through emotions. The was really interesting, um, and uh, I'll have a little bit more to talk about that later during Book Nook. Okay, yeah, yeah. The podcasts are weird in that, like, mostly their stuff I'm listening to, you know, I'm just, like, I'm listening to, but every once in a while, because, you know, I can be angsty, I'll put in on-the-nose songs like that where, like, you know, age 20, I think that was age 26 I put that on. So that was a year in which I felt like I was going through the motions. And yeah. So I stuck that on there. Um yeah, I'm. I'm. I kind of expect you to come back and you know try to find nice things to say, but mostly be like, yeah, it's not my taste in music. So. Um, oh, I wasn't really even thinking about it oh. like that. Oh. In in terms of how much Joanna Tova Price enjoys, you know, like, I mean, I guess my relationship to music is that is as in, as as like in my head as everything else, right? Yeah. So it's not it's hard to yeah. It's not a question of like is this aesthetically pleasing? It's like what does this mean to Dylan and what does this mean yeah, and how does yeah. this work? That's how I think about music too, yeah. you know. Like, and it, it's interesting to you what you said about the sort of melancholy and the ambience because I would say that like in my mind that's definitely present there, but I hadn't thought about how uh how dominant that is as an aesthetic, yeah, but I think huge. Uh, but I'm sure it's yeah, you're you're correct and what it is is that like when I construct these playlists, the, one of the ideas is that, like, because I'm not I am not a celebrity, people are not like, ooh, what's going to be on Dylan's annual playlist, right? They're mostly for me. And so they're playlists that I make that I say I can make this, and it's, you know, something that I will listen to a bunch myself. I make it in place. The songs I won't get tired of. And there's something about songs that wrap me up, you know, I think the extended intros, that have sort of time to get into them that are sort of rich and textured. That it's it's like swimming in a pool, you know. It's you you can do it again and again and again. Yeah. And it's not, whereas there's you know I think we all know pop songs which like they have a really good hook and we're into them. But if right. you listen to them a bunch, they're very tiresome and they only have the hook, right? Yeah. So I like things that are not just like putting all the weight on the course. There are a few things. There's like what is it? Um, your generation that bought more shoes and you got what you deserve. You know, there are a little bit more like poppy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm nodding. Not that any of you can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'm nodding. Okay. Um, so for Dylan's JP assignment, what, what were your? Can I ask you? Did, did you have any favorite songs? I know you weren't thinking about that. Yeah, as the like, Jesus song. The Jesus song. I just the one about walking in the valley. Oh, that one. Yeah, the Bell that's, Bell Bell that's yeah. your favorite one. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, they. So there's this one of the many things about Kentucky Route Zero. We'll talk about when we get there. Is that the the house music is so they have a guy who's the composer right and the vast majority of Kentucky Route Zero music is very ambient, um, but every, once every episode they'll have a musical montage and there's sort of a bluegrass band called the Bedquilt Ramblers which they have made just for this series, uh, and that's once from I think the second episode I'm not sure it's so good it's super good it's yeah um, so yeah that song's good so what Joanna told me to do 
was to read a poem. All right, read a poem. Ha ha ha. Write a poem. Right. And, uh, from the perspective of a video game character, and then you know, obviously, read it on the podcast. Yeah. Um, I got this assignment, and a few days later, I was kind of. This is the one of the ones I was kind of putting off doing. And I asked Joanna, Joanna, did it occur to you that I might be self conscious about reading my poetry on the podcast? And she said, No. I mean, honestly, had she not thought of it, I, I'm guessing that this is because in college I was very much like probably like a little more proud of my poetry than I should be. Hmm. Um, so I wasn't not, uh, I mean, I wasn't like, I'm so great, but I wasn't shy about sharing it. And then I kind of fell off the poetry writing train pretty much immediately after college. And so I literally, until I had to write this, probably had not written a poem in five years. Um, so I was pretty nervous about making anything that wasn't just like really embarrassing garbage. So I'm not going to tell you that this is good. That is for you to evaluate, but I feel like I've cleared the bar of not embarrassing garbage. So let me pull this up. I just had it up and now it's not here. There it is. And let me wet my whistle. Wow. Dylan. Yes. Wow. Yes. All right. So without further ado. The poem is titled, Passed On and On. You told me pain was transitory, fleeting, of no great import. But you have never died. You know scrapes from falls, pinpricks, aching organs, heartbreak in the metaphoric sense, but nothing fatal. I have been shot, stabbed, and stomped, drowned at the touch of open water. I have fallen a thousand times, mere pixels from the platform, unable to grab, doomed to plummet feet first, sometimes into spikes, elsewhile into infinity. I have crashed the plane, grounded the ship, and nicked my car on a small piece of geometry. Cue fireball. Death is never pleasant. No player character ever died in their sleep. Pneumonia isn't modeled in our systems. Yet I power up where it's in onwards. My existence is motion, the only true finality, an abandoned playthrough. Even the end credits are misnamed. There is always New Game Plus. That's good. I liked it. Um, it's interesting. It's an interesting take on from the perspective of a video game character. Um, I, in my mind, I thought you would choose a video yeah, game character. Yeah, I'd be like, I'm Sonic. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so it's an interesting take on, you know, a video game character as a thematic entity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminds me of the Minecraft museum that I made. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what we should do is we should find a way to add your poem to that museum. Yeah, yeah. You know that, right? Well, we, ha- we have to, you'd have to start the server up again. Uh, yeah, but that shouldn't be a problem. Okay. Get in there and yeah, yeah. add it to and the museum. I'll- well, I do want to say, Joanna, I was, you know, I, I mean, the whole point of JP is to go a little bit outside your comfort zone. So that this was that for me, but I was actually really happy I did it. I, I kind of got into the, the flow state. and, and put It's nice, together. right? Yeah. It's it good is. shit. It's good stuff. All right. Next is JP assignments. So my assignment for Joanna uh, is that she should listen to... Uh, a few episodes of the podcast Slow Burn. I'm going to pull up the exact episodes in a second. Uh, Slow Burn, some of you may have already heard it because it was kind of a big deal a couple years ago, was a podcast uh, run by someone out of uh, Slate, uh, the online magazine. Uh, And I think the origin of the podcast was, even in the very early days of the Trump presidency, it was clear that there were going to be a lot of scandals and things that were not entirely above board in this presidency. That's right. You know, that this is someone who had a long history of essentially being a crooked businessman uh, and was already staffing his um, his uh, administration with a bunch of people who were sort of, you know, crooked lobbyists and whatever. And that, you know, there might be some some not good things. And so, of course, a lot of people start being, oh, you know, think about Watergate. Look at the comparisons to Watergate, right? Because Watergate is not merely a thing that happened, but a core part of the American mythology at this point. And Watergate is the mythology of Watergate as, you know, the time that America made a great mistake and erected, elected a corrupt man uh, to the presidency, and it was really bad, but our system also worked because the, the, the things in the system that are supposed to remove corrupt people from power did remove them you know, through the process of impeachment. Right. Um, technically, he resigned before he was fully kicked out, but he did that because he was imminently being impeached. Um, and so what Slow Burn 
does is two things. It both complicates that narrative in sort of saying like what was the actual lengthy process that made Watergate happen and was this something that was actually guaranteed to happen? Was this an inevitable result of our system or did a bunch of things fall into place? And the second, I think maybe more interesting question to ask is, is what was the experience of being there, right? Mm-hmm. Because we see we only see Watergate from the rear the rearview mirror where we know what happened and we know that Nixon was guilty, right? Whereas at the time, this thing is developing and initially it's not treated as a big deal. It's not tr- considered credible that the president would have done things like this, right? It's like a out there conspiracy theory. And so these episodes uh, talk about both interesting untold stories in the Watergate saga, how people processed it, the process by which some people went from supporting the president to not, and how some people never made that change. Um, and there's also a really episode, interesting episode on Watergate and sort of the rise of conspiracy culture in America, because Watergate was initially dismissed as an absurd conspiracy, and it turned out the absurd conspiracy was true. And once that happens, a bunch of people go, well, what other conspiracies are true, right? And it sort of opens Pandora's box. Um, Did we go to the moon? You know, ex- exactly, exactly, right? I mean, a lot exactly. of things gain traction post-Watergate. Yeah, there we go. So um, the, episode I want, the episodes I want you to listen to are, they're all really good, like everything I said, but I would say, you know, start with the first the first four episodes, um, which basically take you from the earliest portions of Watergate to when they're starting to make Senate hearings. Okay. You know, and, Sounds good. And, yeah, and let us know what it is. You know, obviously, if you love it and you want to listen to more, do so. But Cool. All right. Um, so now it is my turn to assign Dylan JP mm-hmm. uh, assignment, and I am going to ask you so earlier in this podcast we mentioned that i am probably going to move to sacramento in april Mm -hmm. um and one of the things that that means is that we're going to be spending we'll probably be doing the media section of our podcast you know the in advance together so what i'm saying is like there's going to be we talk you know traditionally we choose a piece of media like a video game or something and we each independently consume it and then we talk about it on the podcast but I think that now a lot of that is going to be done together. And so um, in April, when we're in the same city, it makes sense to have that be the case. Uh, that is to say, it makes sense to have a shared media section of this podcast that reflects the time we hang out because of the theme of this podcast, which is about friendship, right? So I'm thinking about that. And um, in various places over the years, uh, we, and by we, I mostly mean you, have gathered lists of things like TV shows and movies and board games for us to uh, engage with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so your JP assignment is to gather these various sources together to create an overall media list we can use for the podcast. But rather than just dumping everything into one place, ideally this would be a multimedia list that is particularly curated for the podcast. Yeah, things that would be very discussable and yeah. Right. I think this is a good JP assignment um, because it requires uh, reflects your role as a curator um, and will also actually be very productive for us going forward, like actually helpful. So that's that's the that's the JP assignment. That sounds great, Joanna. That's very thoughtful. Thank you. Yay! Okay. Um, so now we're actually uh, breezing through this, but it's now time for a Dylan song break. Okay, great. So I, I had to think about this a little bit uh, this, this month, but I said, well, you know, when in doubt, why not just put on your favorite song, or at least in my case, one of my favorite songs. Um, what may be my favorite song is a song that's about eight minutes long. <laughs> so I'm not sticking that in the middle of the podcast, but this is at the very least a close second in many days of the week, my favorite. It is from the, the REM album Automatic for the People, which has been my favorite album for most of my life. And as a way of introducing this song, there was a guy I knew in college who worked um, out the house offices, you know, basically the, the dorms. He helped run the dorms. Uh, his name was Matt, uh, and Matt was a bit of a music hipster, and Matt had a much probably better taste in music than me. He was far more musically knowledgeable of me, you know, and I'm just the kid who, you know, listens to a lot of video game music and also likes R.E.M., right? So there's not a lot of common ground between us, and in fact, I love this one R.E.M. album called Monster, which uh, in my first few months of college, he informed me is objectively bad, uh, and this becomes a running argument between <laughs> us for four years, but very late, you know, in my college career, and he's not, he's not a guy who... I mean, he, he's actually, like, he's a nice guy, 
but he doesn't like to show it, right? He he's more of a troll. He's uh, a little bit of a hipster. He's too. a little bit of a hipster. And he's a little bit of a troll. So he's not often going to kind of give you the nice thing on a plate. But there was one time when we were talking to REM, and he said, you know, I, I, actually, I actually, you know, do like REM albums, and there's really, you know, two right answers. We're talking about Jack the Bad, right? There's two right answers for the best REM album. The first one is Murmur, and I don't think he went into this deal because it's, like, self-apparent. It's a band coming out of nowhere, making an album that doesn't sound like anything else, in which every song is perfect. You know, that's Murmur. And then he says, there's Automatic for the People, right? Because Automatic for the People, you know, it's this great album of, you know, musical textures and... Most from it's really, really good, but it builds, you know, and you just gets you've had this great album, and then you get Night Swimming, which is one of the most beautiful songs ever written. And, you know, for most albums, that would be the final song. But it doesn't stop there. Then it keeps on going and you get Find the River. And he actually says this, and he's non REM nerd, and I swear like I still remember this, because I'm just like I found my people or someone pretending to be my people for five seconds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um it is, at the very least, one of the most beautiful and pleasant songs R.M. has ever made. So without further ado, I will put on Find the River.
That was Find the River. Very good song. You actually liked it? I did. Okay. That's nice. And Joanna is not an REM enthusiast, but it's just such a pleasant song that even if it's like not your favorite thing, you know, mm-hmm. sort of feel good. It is. Um, and it's very richly textured. One, uh, you know, I was listening to the uh, podcast, Are You Talking REM Remi? And one thing they note about Automac for the people in particular is, is at a certain point, one of them has never heard this before. And he's like, this sounds like a very expensive album. Yeah. You know, that this is a point where REM had basically an infinite budget because they were coming off one of the biggest albums in the world uh, and what they did spend that on was a horns and a string section you know so they have all this you know they're doing an interesting where they're a rock band and you know they obviously have their guitarists and stuff but you know instead of you know just doing arena rock they bring in a lot of sort of more classical instruments for something that that still feels like a rock song but you know yeah. has that those textural elements that help a lot let's see so next up is uh speaking of folksy music is Illamot. That's so right. Can you remind us what uh Illamot is? Or do we even want to read the whole thing from the booklet? Yeah, do you want to grab it? Sure. One second. One second. Boop. This is the sound of me pushing Joanna's buttons. Oh my god. Oh boy. That's not what my buttons sound like, Dylan. God. Okay, let me. Let me read it. Let me read. Oh my god. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you, and then you're going to die. Okay. I'm proving my point because I said I was pushing her buttons and made those sounds, and then she was like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. Okay, here we go. Um, What is Illamot? In early 2009, the Decemberists that is the band, the Decemberists, had an idea for a photo shoot where they would be a secret society playing a weird and wonderful game in different locations. Carson Ellis and photographer Autumn DeWilde created a game board as a prop and called it the Illamat. Flash forward to 2015, the band, having played many board games on the road during their downtime between soundcheck and show, decided to try and make this strange game board without a board game into a real living thing. And by real living thing, it actually says real living breathing game. I just inserted language there for some reason. Chris Funk from the band approached us at Together Studios to see what we could do. Keith Baker, creator of Gloom and Eberron, worked to make Illamont feel like an old forgotten card game that would be compelling to modern players. A game that feels of its time, yet weirdly out of time altogether. Now, uh... I should mention up front that one of the things we discovered when we were playing this game is that the rule book is terrible. Yeah, it, it's the rule book is one of those rule books that it, it's clearly like it's a clear, pretty. It's very pretty, and it's clearly a game that's designed for people who are not like necessarily hardcore gamers. And I think like I've seen some really bad rule books in a day, which are just like a designer like threw up you know rules in the book. Yeah. This is not that. Like it's very well laid out. Information is where you expect to find it in the rule book. Uh, it's it's not it's just overly incomplete. long. It's just incomplete. There's a bunch of things where you you know you have some edge case questions, which aren't even that edge cases. Like what happens if you tie in your final score that the game doesn't answer. And there's a and they have actually a wonderful, beautiful website that they they put like as rules clarifications, and they put things there. And it's like that's not a clarification. You just made that's a new rule. A rule. You just made a new rule. I will say it does say up front in the book to go to the website. It does. So like, so they must the have some idea. Yeah, they go to ilmot.com for links to videos and other player resources. Which you know, and like in the age of smartphones, you can get away with that. But I still, I'm a one of the nice things about board games is that you don't need they're anything. analog right they don't need anything to power them yeah. that if all the power goes out and there's no candlelights and there's no sun you know i can play a board game um there's actually uh one place one of my my bucket list goals is there's a place that i think is called ravenwood castle it is a sort of medieval style ca- castle inn in new hampshire and it's so far in rural new hampshire that it doesn't um or sorry ohio i made it up and so it's so far in rural ohio that it doesn't get any reliable cell coverage. Um, so, it, and it specializes in board gaming. So you get in like these really, because it's rural, like really well-priced, like beautiful surroundings with rooms and they have like a tavern and they have a board game collection and you can just hang out there and, you know, you go for walks in the woods and play board games and talk to people. But you can't use the internet and, you know, I mean, you can play, you know, you bring a Game Boy, I guess, right? But it, it's, it's like pure physical interaction with people. Which is something I find I find really appealing. Um, yeah, jo- yeah, Joanna would be less enthusiastic about going to Ravenwood Castle. <laughs> uh, probably. So, 
Right. So what did we think of the game? So what more yeah. about what the game is? Yes. You so you you It's it's what's called a trick-taking game. Well, it's not exactly a trick-taking game, but it feels a lot back there. For those who are not familiar with the term trick-taking is games like Spades and Hearts, um which are games where you have, you know, it's played with a standard deck of cards, you know, and you're trying to collect certain numbers and certain types of cards. This doesn't work exactly like that, but it uses something very similar to a standard deck of cards. We have, you know, two through ten and face cards and essentially an ace. Right. So the aesthetic of the game is kind of occulty. You spread out a cloth, and then you put the top of the box in the middle of the board. Mm-hmm. Top of the box has four seasons, much like our own four seasons. In fact, the same four seasons. Um, and then you uh, uh, seed each... Uh, quarter each section of the cloth with is it four cards or three uh three cards in each field three cards in each field um and when you are laying them down you're seeding but as you place them later in the game you're sewing um and each each season there is something you cannot do except in summer the and the things that you can do um uh basically come down to adding cards and removing cards or creating little banks of cards that you can that will add up to more value if you come and get them all at once a little bit later. Yeah. So the um stockpiling. So, stockpiling, that's right. So there's a there is a so it's a, a farming themed game. Yeah. Um and there's a lot of math involved. You're trying to match values to take cards. It's simple math. I mean this is not like it's, a brain right arithmetic. Arith- it's yeah. a, a lot of arithmetic. But it yes. And then then there's a second element called luminaries and um the way it works is that you uh, is the luminaries are cards that change the change a rule for the whole game um, while it's in play. So you might have a luminary that changes what how many cards get seeded into a field or um, the rules of one of the seasons or, or what you exchange it's cards. It's always winter or whatever. Right, and as long as that luminary is on the board that rule is in play but as soon as it leaves the board you go back to normal rules without it so that's also a pretty standard mechanic in games to have something that creates a condition temporarily for the game on top of the base rules and it's played over a series of rounds and but a lot of the ways you get things are like you have the most cards so it's not a game where you just like you get something you get a point you know often you'll you know you'll have 15 cards except joanna will have 16 so i get no points um so it's sort of low scoring. You're only going to get a few points per round, and there's very limited ways you get points. I think we finished the game in like four, four or five rounds. Four or five rounds. We were, but we were also new people trying to figure it out and definitely not like making optimal and plays. Right, that's right. And the first person to get to 17 points yeah. wins the game. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you don't score till the end of a round, though, yeah. so you definitely finish whatever round yeah. you're Yeah, and, and it's an interesting game because it is, I think they did what they set out to do, which is to make a game that feels like an old you know sort of folk classic but with the tight design of a modern board game i think they absolutely accomplished um so i'm really happy to, and, and the aesthetic is a big part of it yeah so it's i think it's it's yeah it's, it's huge. very beautiful and it, and the the aesthetic really feels feeds into the mechanics and everything so like i think it's still like it's a solid math like it's, it's a solid abstract card game like i enjoy playing it but you know it would not nearly be as enjoyable if it was just you know written on index cards right you know and you had you know, chits. Um, it has these little metal figurines that you yeah. know, represent the players. Something and the luminaries are illustrated are re- illustrated tarot sized uh, cards, which are in some ways sort of evocative of the major arcana. And uh, and we also what we didn't get to is that um, my assignment when this was a JP assignment, not media club, was to listen to the album The Crane Wife because Illamont has an expansion called The Crane Wife Expansion, which adds luminaries. Which are inspired by the songs from the Crane Wife, a 2004 December's album, and still maybe their biggest. Um, and we didn't, we just, we had no time to, to play with those cards. Yeah. But I did listen to the album, and I did like it. Um, and it's actually funny that we we mentioned Find the River because I, I know I've seen a few plays that the Decemberists are like really obviously influenced by REM and doing, you know, especially um, Colin Malloy's vocals and the, the sort of ambiguous semi-mythological lyrics uh that they do um the the combination the sort of fusion of folk and rock i definitely liked it it was his his lyrics are such who are like i'm so picky about vocalists and i feel like doubly male vocalists in terms of like how yeah, it, yeah absolutely because there's so many people who sing beautifully but for me it's like it's a little grating to hear more than one song from them and he definitely he's one of these people where his voice is is essentially 
permanently lilting. So, and there's something about that where I want like a, a sometimes lilt and not an always lilt. He's almost like the male version of, uh, is it Dolores O'Riordan? Who's the, who's the, the Cranberries person? I don't know. Okay. It's probably her. And if it's not her, I'm going to go back and edit this podcast. So I say the right name. Ha ha. I can do that. But I never did that because I definitely said the right name the first time. Wink. But overall, I mean, I definitely enjoyed the album. We'll listen to it again. I will also say what's funny because I realized I gave you um, these playlists, uh, my annual playlist, and one of the songs my annual playlist is a, is a, there's a song by Lucy Wainwright Roach. Yes. You know what I'm talking about. I do know which one you're talking about. And he does the guest vocals on it. I don't know if you recognized his voice. So it's Colin Malloy of the December is doing the sort of backing vocals. Yeah, I like that song. And his vocals are great. I love his vocals on that. So I feel like maybe I like him more in duets, you know? Yeah, that's an artist who um, li- is pre- pretty regularly playing playing in New York City, and I kept bugging you to go to, and now you won't. <laughs> but yeah, she's great. I love her. Yeah, so that was Illamot. That was Illamot. That was Illamot. So then it is time for Joke of the Month, which is me this time, so you don't have to deal with another one of Joanna's terrible jokes. I, I There's a coworker I have who listens to the podcast, and I asked her about, what, what, did, what did you think of Joanna's joke? This was the Captain Hook joke, for those who don't remember. The joke was right. good, and, and that, people don't have no and, sense of humor. No, and that's what, my, that's what my coworker said. She's like, you know, it was funny if you're like six. <laughs> Whatever. It was a good joke. <laughs> Your aunt jokes weren't that much better. Okay, but you understand that the thing is that if you the argument against my aunt jokes is that they're funny if you're six, they were literally written by six-year-olds, right? So it's like, what's your excuse? <laughs> But my joke of the month club actually this is a total coincidence because we added the thing about limericks the last thing but they're from a book called a limerick goes into a bar which is a book by my father with uh illustrations from a family friend mark and he had written a couple books of limericks uh self-published at uh yeah great, i have them great paint joanna has them i have, have the you series ever, you ever look through them yep they'll be, they'll be coming to sacramento they will um but this is definitely my favorite of him, and the idea of this book is that there's, you know, there's, there's the blank walks into a bar. It's like a whole sort of foam yeah. of jokes. So the idea is to take those jokes and translate them into lyrics and then uh, illustrate them with some really lovely illustrations from Mark. Uh, so I want to read a few of these. This one is called A Pirate. Hey, Captain, the barman said, what's the deal with that ship's wheel that juts out the front of your pants? The old pirate's mad glance told us tale. Arg, it's driving me nuts! Another one is a termite. The directions were perfectly clear. She stops by a half-empty beer, calls her date, no response, but she knows what she wants. So asks, hi, is the bar tender here? Um, and my personal favorite, a harp seal. He looked little more than a cub. The barman said, how about some grub? No, just whiskey. Fio, Northern Light, I don't know. Anything but Canadian club. And I guess the final thing I will say, this is the final poem of the book. It's called A Man with a Duck on His Head. The bartender cried, Mr. D. Old buddy, it's long time no see. And the next said, meet Harris. I found him in Paris. I practically got him for free. And the illustration, you've seen this, yeah, is my right. dad with a duck on his head. That's excellent. So that's my, I don't know if those, those, those qualify as jokes. Their jokes turned into limericks. They're good there enough. They're go. jokes. Um, and we, I'm we, sure your coworker on. would agree. I'm sure my coworker would agree. I'm sure that she will think they're funny and also terrible. Okay. Um, it is time for Joanna's book nook. I am pulling an old one out of the hat this time. I am going to do Jonathan Safran Foer's Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. Also, guys, I have to interject. She doesn't actually have a hat on. I think she was being metaphorical. Or is that allegorical? Uh, it was published by Hewton Mifflin Harcourt in 2006. Um, and it is, I'm choosing this book. Um, Fower has come under, his latest book has come under some criticism for being a little bit um, unaware. and It's not substantially woke. Not substantially woke. And and I will say that I liked his, the book that came before this, Everything is Illuminated, was also quite good. But I think it's possible it will turn out that Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close is his best work. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think every, I think it's worth a read. It's a moving and provocative look at um, three kinds of trauma. So it's a, a child's trauma, 
Um, it is about a child whose father dies uh, in the 9-11 attacks. And it's about the national trauma that is 9-11. It's also about a cultural history of trauma. Like all of Jonathan Safran Foer's work, there is a connection to um, the Holocaust mm-hmm. and to Jewish, the Jewish trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks at the relationship of these three things. And I think it's interesting to read right now because I think that question is in play. Of national trauma. Not just national trauma, but specifically the question of how different kinds of trauma relate to each other and how, when, when are they, you know, together and when are they distinct. And what, and what effects does that produce? And what effects do they produce, right? So it's an interesting, you know, sort of explicit and yet not technical, very moving uh, and thoughtful account of what it means to be an individual that is part of a larger group and the history of that as well. Um, it is written from the perspective of a, of a young boy, uh, and it's done very well. The other thing that makes this book remarkable is that it's good 9-11 fiction, of which there isn't very much. Yeah. Um, it's really hard to write well about something like 9-11 because it would seem like it's easy, but the more sensational something it is, the harder it is to write about well. Because there's so many, it's almost like the tropes are the narrative. Right, exactly. So it's so hard to write about it from like from an authentic personal experience point without talking about what it means, you know, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think it's worth picking up, you know, I think if you, if for a number of reasons, one is it's a good read for the time, another is that it's a good read for Foer, right? That, like, you're probably not going to find a better Foer book. And I think, you know, obviously things are what they are, but I think that, you know, it's very possible that looking back on the work of Foer, this will be the standout thing. So so it sounds like it's a good book for me to read. Foer, you to read. So, yeah, so that is um, extremely loud and incredibly close. The movie is not as good, just so you guys well, know. It really is. Really is, but in this case, you should definitely read the book. And if you've seen the movie and you're like, meh, you should check out the book. All right. That would be, we've already timed things, but I think that'd be an interesting JP list is movies that are better than the book. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, Joanna's book. That's Nook. Joanna's book. Nook. Oh, that's right. I, I'm like, oh, I don't have to do anything anymore. Do, do, do. Oh, right. Dirt, dirt. So uh, today we're doing Dylan's Game Corner. Uh, it is January 2019. So one thing I could do is tell you about uh, the best games I played last year. Unfortunately, I am a little behind on a, a writing project where I, I write about that. So we'll, that will be coming to you in February. Instead, I'm, I'm running uh, with an idea Joanna gave me uh, last month, which is to talk about a really good casual game um, in... In gaming terms, casual games are generally, they mean that by video games for people, or they at least are accessible to people who don't play video games very much. They don't require a lot of, you know, inside knowledge. They don't require, like, twitch reflexes that aren't hyper-competitive, you know, all that stuff, right? They're sort of maybe, you know, the antithesis of an online first-person shooter. Right. Um, so my personal, one of my favorite casual games, and... I think the one that has sort of meant the most to me weirdly over the last few years is something called Hex Cells. And so to tell you Hex Cells is a game where, you know, if I had pictures, it would be really easy to show you what it was. But since it's a podcast, it's pretty hard to explain. So the, the best way I can start is to talk about Minesweeper. Minesweeper is one of these games that almost everybody in the United States and many more people throughout the rest of the world have played because it has come and pre-installed on Windows yes. since Windows 95. Um, and in fact, I think it was originally... Um, in a pack for Windows 3.1. They had a few what were called entertainment packs where Microsoft released game packages. Uh, Minesweeper is both brilliant and deeply, swall- and deeply flawed. It's brilliant because it's doing something with a computer that is a little hard to do on paper. It's procedurally generating a minefield, and the whole thing with Minesweeper is that you used uh, deductive logic to um, figure out where the mines are and plant a little flag on them and uh, where what the safe spaces are. And so you'll have a square, and it'll be like, they're are two of the squares next to you have a mine on them, right? And you then use the other squares to sort of position things, right? Uh, and it's kind of a nice little zen brain killer is the upside. It has a few downsides. One is that it's sometimes you have to guess. Some people don't mind that, but for me, a puzzle game, I, wanna, I want it to be solvable. I don't want to start a puzzle that might just be screwed from day one. I have the same issue with Solitaire, right? That depending on how the cards are shuffled, sometimes you have an unwinnable game before you even start. And why I'm super sad that sometimes it's like 
you've done everything you can do and one of these two flags is mine all you can do is but click it and if you click the wrong one enter game you have to start all over the second thing is that the difficulty doesn't scale very well minesweeper has basically one approach and one strategy and higher difficulty just make a bigger field which makes it more likely for you to have a random guess where you click the wrong mine, right? Right, not, so it just makes add, it more random. Right. It doesn't add more mechanics yes. or interesting things. So yep, those are the exactly. two big problems of Minesweeper. Um, so Hex Cells is a game that comes along and takes uh, a very similar approach. The Hex Cells, there's a certain number of tiles, you know, they're not mines necessarily, but they're basically tiles that are, are you need to mark, kind right. of these are the things, and the tiles that are kind of safe, where the dangerous tiles. Um, it's called Hex Cells because they're hexagons rather than squares. Um, this opens up a little bit more design territory. And it's a game that first, I mean, for a game that is about hexes with numbers on them, it's aesthetically beautiful, right? It's, it's the whole thing is very chill. It has this very chill ambient sound that's sort of zen-like. It, it goes very slowly. So something sort of telling you like, it's okay, take your time. You don't need to rush through these puzzles. Um, and at the beginning, it's very simple. It starts off as like super simple Minesweeper. The big difference from the start is that each puzzle is handcrafted. They are not procedurally generated. Uh, the very clever um, creator, Matthew Brown, has made these puzzles, you know, and they have one right answer, and there's different things you untangle as you play them. And they're basically a bunch of... The first puzzles are basically built in tutorials. It teaches you some basic mechanics, and at first it's just like Minesweeper. You know, there are three t- hexes around this one. Yep. Uh, and eventually you start getting other mechanics. Like, you might have a little number outside the board, and it's like, there are 11 hexes in this row. Or you might have one that says there are three um, or 11, you know, spots in this row. Or there might be one that says the three active spots are next to each other, are adjacent of these six. Or they're not adjacent. So they're definitely not adjacent. Or you might have something that says within this area, there's like a area kind of shades and there's three within this area. And you start cross-referencing this different information. Now, I'm pretty sure that everybody listening to this podcast, unless they're like some sort of Minecraft or Minecraft, haha, Minesweeper addict, is like z you know this is this is not <laughs> this is not sound fun yeah um nothing there's no way in which i can pitch hex cells to you that will make it sound interesting or exciting i think part of it has yeah. to do with the fact that it's a very visual situation yeah. and we're just talking so yeah you can't it is see it. it is visual but it's not it's also all in your head if that makes sense it's math yeah that's part of it but it's also i think it's all games are all about the context in which you play them right so a lot of games in particular what we call you know, hard games, are full immersion experiences, right? You are playing the game. You're only aware of the game. You're not doing anything else. Hex cells, I'm someone who has a lot of trouble multitasking. I generally can't listen to music and do something else. Hex cells is my music game. So it's particularly if I'm bummed out, I can put on some of my trademark melancholy music and play hex cells and sort of it focuses me, me just enough to keep my eye on the game, but not so much that I can't listen to music or do something else while I'm doing it. I really enjoyed that quality of it and that it's just completely sort of serene and pure the thing i want to put out here maybe to try to sell people on this is that i'm not a big puzzle game person i haven't like puzzles in games that are doing other things but pure puzzle games i generally just don't have the drive to complete them i need you know i want some narrative or i want some action i want something else in the mix um and i'm also i'm even less yeah. of a math game person i don't do sudoku i'm not interested in it and yet hex cells grabs me and part of it is that it has just the most perfect difficulty curve where it keeps giving you skills and then giving you a new puzzle portal is a lot like this where it asks you to stretch yourself just a little bit more but nothing too bad um and by the time of the the end of the first of hexels the game um you feel like okay i've really got this figured out there is then a sequel called hexels plus which basically starts exactly where that game left off adds a few new mechanics but mostly just is increasing the difficulty of the puzzles um but it's not super hard because everything you need to know you've already learned and mastered by finishing hex cells. So it kind of is building your confidence and letting you continue through. And then there's a third and final one called hex cells infinite, which both just, you know, keeps going up so that the final puzzles are actually fairly difficult, but you can do it. Um, and then it does have a way that you can procedurally generate puzzles that are not as good as the individual ones, but still, you know, are great for passing the time. The one I think thing about hex cells that is truly brilliant, that really elevates it. And as I mentioned in Minesweeper, if you accidentally click on a mine, your game is over and you have to start over. And hex cells, if you accidentally clip on, click on a, a mine or whatever you want to call it, the screen shakes a little bit. It makes a slightly unhappy sound, and it just says, you know, there's a little area that says how many mistakes you you made. So it goes from mistakes zero to mistakes one. And otherwise, nothing happens. You can keep on playing it, and you can finish the puzzle, and it's fine. It won't stop your progress. If you want to be a perfectionist who doesn't want to make any mistakes and restart the puzzle, you can totally do that, and some people will. But otherwise, 
it's not gonna do that cool and so i really love games that let you play them at your own level forgiving yeah Yeah. um and uh and also each of these games is like the non-sale price for them is like two dollars they're stupidly cheap uh so i they're on steam and other platforms i i highly recommend people you know get the first hex cells and check it out cool and uh that is i think it for uh this podcast the fifth episode the fifth episode this is a weirdly short episode i was actually worried that we would that we would uh run out of time we didn't run out of run out of time or just have like a two and a half hour episode but i think i don't know what do you think it is joanna is it because we've been hanging out together for a week so we're just like so super communicative with each other is it that we're tired of each other's company or just trying to get this out of the way as fast as possible and don't feel like going on tangents no i think we we did good i think we just nailed it i think we just nailed it we nailed that podcast nailed it we nailed after it. we shut our pants all the way up which is a little we confusing nailed, we but nailed the, we nailed the pants shut we nailed the oh my god okay okay well right. without further ado we will be back in february uh once joanna will once again be joining us from new york new york new york new we'll york, see you new then york. and see you then bye or hear you then or whatever yeah whatever we whatever. will yes whatever bye bye